Hi, welcome to Traveling Taste Buds, a journey to eat our way across the world one dish at a time. Each episode, I dive into the history and culture surrounding a recipe, the food science behind it, and how the ecology of the landscape influenced the ingredients used. My name is Zoe Kochleser, and this is episode one, Meatloaf. Just to clarify right off the bat, this episode is about the food item, Meatloaf. Not the musician of Iraqi horror and E Street band fame. Some of you may be wondering why I pick meatloaf for the first episode. It's not particularly alluring, like a rich gnocchi bolognese, or surprising, like succulent banh mi. It's round meat in the shape of a loaf. To be honest, I picked meatloaf for this episode because my mom has a really good recipe, and I don't know much about where meatloaf came from. It's the feature of an episode of Good Eats. Good Eats Reloaded with Alton Brown, and has been in the scores of cooking shows where hosts are eager to explain their secret ingredient. But who made the first meatloaf? What was in it? How has it evolved? How are the ingredients sourced? And how does that affect the environment? Let's find out. Meatloaf is, as a concept is a little self-explanatory. It's meat in the shape of a loaf. A lot of recipes use beef, breadcrumbs, egg, and onion but there are near infinite variations. Just about anything can go in meatloaf. There are recipes with prunes, some with turmeric, various kinds of meat, and one from 1940 that had cereal flakes. There are some recipes that don't even include meat. They use things like soy and beans um, to have a meat-like consistency. The rule of thumb is ground meat, the holy trinity being beef, pork, and veal, but any ratio or meat will do. Something called filler, which is typically grains, but you could also use minced vegetables, and something to bind everything together, usually egg or dairy. Season however you desire and bake in a loaf shape. My mom's recipe that I'll be following for this episode is all beef, uses panko breadcrumbs and onions as filler, and is bound with egg. There's also a hefty list of seasonings. Meatloaf is typically regarded as an American dish. But it didn't actually originate here. The first recipe for a meatloaf-like dish is in, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm so sorry, De Re Coquinaria, a Roman cookbook from the first century CE. It's written in a dialect of Latin closer to vulgar than classical, which isn't important to the recipe at all, I just thought it was a neat fact. The cookbook is falsely attributed to the gourmet Marcus Gavius Epicus, hope I said that right, and is sometimes attributed to the unknown Cecilius Epicus due to one of the manuscripts having A-P-I-C-A-E at the top. The cookbook features sections on different kinds of meat, vegetables, legumes, and seafood, and has a recipe for a dish comprised of chopped meat baked with wine-soaked bread and nuts. The medieval time period found several recipes similar to meatloaf. The scrap cuts were mixed with fruit and nuts. And in 17th century France, they had chopped meat, or offal, said O-F-F-A-L, in gelatin on their dinner spreads. An article by The Atlantic cites 18th century Pennsylvanian Dutch settlers as creating the modern American meatloaf. Out of desire to waste not, want not, the settlers scraped meat from pig bones and mixed it with lungs, liver, and heart, in a broth with seasonings and cornmeal. They called this scrapple. 
S-C-R-A-P-P-L-E. Don't confuse it with the board game Scrabble. Those have two Bs. Uh, but what really makes me... Well, But what really puts meatloaf on the map was the Industrial Revolution. The invention of the meat grinder by Carl Drace meant chefs didn't need to tediously chop meat into small chunks. And so this meant that ground meat was faster produced and in turn became cheaper. In addition, the growth of meat packing in places like Chicago and the invention of refrigeration led to greater availability. Meatloaf became really important during the Great Depression because meat could be stretched to feed more people by adding fillers like oatmeal, cornmeal or breadcrumbs. The recurrence of the dish throughout this time actually created the cultural notion of meatloaf as a comfort food. It was something warm and filling and reliable. Developments from World War I, like canned soup, powdered sauce mixes, and ketchup could be added for flavor and moistness. Yes, moistness. Increasing the versatility of the dish. And during World War II, meatloaf got a rebranding. Vitality loaf. Kept the nation strong by strategy by stretching rations. Some recipes from this time don't even include meat. They're beans, grains, soy, garden vegetables, all sorts of other things to replicate the consistency without actually having to spring to purchase ground beef. The 1950s and onward held a lot of reimagining for the meatloaf and trying to reinvigorate the staple. The classic version of meatloaf has beef, pork, and veal in equal parts. Um, that came back in the 1970s and was labeled the quintessential comfort food in the 1990s. But you can do really any sort of ratio of meat that you'd like. The Good Eats episode I mentioned earlier from season two's A Grind is a Terrible Thing to Waste, which was filmed in 1999, focuses mostly on supermarket ground beef. All the different kinds, things to watch out for, and how to make your own ground beef from whole cuts of meat. And it also includes cooking the perfect hamburger and a recipe for moist meatloaf with croutons, peppers, onions, carrots, and a home-ground mix of chuck and sirloin. Wow, after listening to all that, I am starving. I'm going to taste test this episode's recipe, and I'll be back after the break with my review and some other tasty morsels. My mom's meatloaf recipe wasn't too hard to follow. It's pretty straightforward. You put the ground beef in a bowl. You mix the breadcrumbs, seasonings, and onions all together with your hands. Make a loaf shape and you bake it. Um, she usually tops it with ketchup. Sometimes making it a little fancy with some brown sugar. I did find it a smidge and dry. I usually put a lot of ketchup on it when I do eat this meatloaf. I should have had the recipe because I forgot how much it makes, and I added up with way too much meatloaf for one person to eat. Uh, but it does make a lot of tasty leftovers for meatloaf sandwiches, which if you've never had, is a delicacy in my parents' household. It's wheat bread, mayonnaise, ketchup, meatloaf. And now it sounds real gross. I promise it tastes good, and yes, I am from the Midwest. Now, while you can put nearly anything in meatloaf, for this last bit of the podcast, I want to talk about beef in particular. Mostly, where do we most often buy beef? How does it fit into the food system? And how does beef production from cow to kitchen impact the environment? It's important to remember that 
everything that we consume, including the food that we literally consume, impacts the world around us. And I think it's really cool to think about where those ingredients come from and how they affect the place that they come from. So meatloaf arose out of a desire to use every last part of the animal because you couldn't just go to the store and buy another pig or cow if you needed to. I mean, you could, but it was a bit more difficult. Or you'd go to the butcher to get your meat. Calories counted and making sure none went by the wayside was important. You wanted to get every last bit of protein you could from those pig bones or cow bones. Nowadays, most people either buy it at a butcher shop, but a lot of people buy their meat in styrofoam packages. Don't get me started on those. They buy them at the supermarket. And I'm guessing that a lot of people don't know very much about actual meat production. Now, this isn't to say that buying meat at the supermarket is bad. That's where I buy my meat all the time because I don't live close to a butcher store. I just want to talk a little bit about the industry and where you can go if you'd like to find more environmental friendly or sustainable options, as well as things that the beef industry is doing to make themselves more sustainable. So according to the World Wildlife Foundation, 25% of emissions from land use and land use change come from beef production. Grazing patterns can alter the carbon sequestration by grasses and removing land cover like trees, shrubs, and native flora can be very damaging. Carbon sequestration just means that the carbon that's in the air is taken in by plants, usually, um, and turned into non-gaseous forms and that's then stored in the soil. So it's just kind of like storing the carbon in the air. Production for uh, beef occurs in some really sensitive ecosystems too, including the savannas of Southern Africa, land that's in the watershed of the Great Barrier Reef, the North American Plains, and the Amazon rainforest. The livestock, livestock industry alone is estimated to be responsible for 80% of current deforestation rates. That's according to the Global Forest Atlas. Cattle can also impact the environment by releasing methane formed in their four-part stomach. Methane is an incredibly dangerous greenhouse gas, trapping more heat than CO2. Waste from livestock can also pollute water sources when not properly treated, and poor grazing regimes can cause erosion as well. If you've ever driven by a uh, pasture that has some sort of creek or river in it, and you've noticed the cow is just standing there, they erode the, the soil banks and they cause damage to the water source. But all is not lost. While it has been said that reducing our collective beef consumption will help with these ills by reducing demand and therefore production, the beef industry has been moving towards more sustainable production. There are grazing patterns that some producers are use that support conservation goals. The animals support plant growth with manure and the tall grasses they feed on, as long as they don't eat them all the way down to the roots, um, can use their deep tap roots to sequester carbon and improve the soil health. In the United States, U.S. Roundtable on Sustainable Beef hereafter referred to as USRSB, was designed to study beef production and ensure sustainability, economic viability, and social responsibility. The board of this group is comprised of beef producers of various sizes, um, cattlemen associations, corporations like Target and McDonald's, animal health groups, research institutes, and environmental organizations like the Nature Conservancy and the World Wildlife Fund. General members can apply 
enlist themselves as producers, allied industries, packers and producers, retail and civil society, according to their website. The USRSB cites consumer desire to reconnect with their food and consumer consideration beyond taste and price, such as environmental practices of production, as part of the reason the group was formed. They've also created the US, US Beef Industry Framework, a document measuring sustainability efforts and outlining how they think the industry should move forward. There are also new tools and techniques being developed to reduce some of the negative environmental impacts we talked about earlier. Apps like PastureMap allow producers to track grazing across shared fields and see how their grazing regimes are affecting carbon sequestration and erosion. Regenerative agriculture has been around for a while, but new science is reinforcing how useful it can be. Regenerative, regenerative agriculture uses techniques like rotating grazing fields to avoid overgrazing and denudation of the landscape and constant forage cover to reduce soil erosion and to sequester carbon. It's basically thinking, how can we grow things without entirely destroying that resource? While some producers are moving in the direction of regenerative agriculture, it is kind of labor intensive and most livestock is not yet managed this way. So what can you do if you'd like to find sustainable ingredients for this dish? I briefly mentioned the movement towards reduced meat consumption earlier, but that isn't possible for everybody and not everybody is going to like meatloaf made entirely out of beans or soy or grains. Buying local is a really solid option because it reduces the miles your food has to travel before it reaches your plate and therefore reduces the gas used to transport it. If your supermarket sells local suppliers, support them. Some farms will even sell directly to consumers, but this means you may have to do the grinding yourself, which isn't pos is possible with a food processor, but not always feasible if you don't own a food processor or if you don't have the time to grind up a whole bunch of meat. You can also check your local butcher shops if they have local beef, and sometimes the butcher may know a little bit about how the beef was produced and what sustainability measures were taken. And sometimes it's just not possible to buy local beef and you have to buy the stuff that's at the supermarket, and that's okay too. The individual consumer can make a lot of change to be more environmentally friendly, but it's also important to look at how the industry itself is taking steps to be more sustainable. Okay, that was a lot to digest, I'm sure. Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you feel full of new knowledge about beef and meatloaf and ready to try a recipe yourself. Please let me know if you have any questions or submit feedback in the reviews. I'm working on getting an email or Dropbox of some kind set up so listeners can submit questions. This is also my first podcast, so please be kind. I'll see you soon with a new dish and a new recipe. Oh, thank you.